I'm far more scared of not living my life today than ever I am of dying tomorrow. It's about today. It's about this minute. Welcome to the Adventure Podcast and this episode with Jerry Gore. Jerry is a climber and mountaineer turned cyclist and endurance athlete. He's also diabetic. In this episode, we talk about Jerry's early life and introduction to the mountains before being diagnosed with diabetes. We discuss how he reacted to and dealt with his illness and how he hasn't let it define him. We go deep on subjects around life and loss in the mountains and disagree agreeably on a few more philosophical points. Before we begin, I'd like to mention that we're on Patreon. So if you're a regular listener to the podcast and would like to access extra content, including InVision interviews and monthly sit-downs with me and a guest, then you can find us on Patreon at The Adventure Podcast. I'd also like to talk to you about Sidetrack Magazine, our sister publication. Sidetrack is an incredible quarterly journal that celebrates authentic stories of adventure and exploration. You can find out more at sidetracked.com. I'd also like to take a quick moment to push you in the direction of our charitable partner, the Martin Moran Foundation. They're a wonderful organisation working to get young people from disadvantaged backgrounds into the outdoors. You can find information about how you can support them on our Instagram bio at The Adventure Podcast. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, then please do subscribe on iTunes and leave us an honest review. They're a big help and it really does help us bring the podcast to a wider audience. Okay, over to Jerry Gore. Okay, rock and roll. Thanks for doing this. Um, I suppose the logical place to start, as always, is to ask you who you are and what you do, whatever that means to you. Well, great to uh, great to talk to you, uh, Matt. It's been a while after that 10-minute talk at 1 o'clock in the morning at Kendall all those years ago. Um, yeah, so uh, my name's Jerry Gore. Um, I'm a type one, uh, diabetic adventurer who raises money for impoverished children with the same condition, type one diabetes. Um, I've been climbing, skiing, adventuring since my first expedition, 1977 in Southeast Iceland. I'm 62. Uh, my knees are knackered, uh, but my spirit is still strong. <laughs> <laughs> and then... You know, inevitably we were going to get onto this, but it's interesting that the first words out of your mouth and ask who you are and what you do is, I'm a type 1 diabetic. Can you tell me, you know, when that came to be and the story, I guess, of what happened to you in that context and, and how you carried on to do what you now do? So um, it was 31st December, uh, sorry, 31st January 2001. I was age 40. Uh, I have a crap memory, but I remember that day. Um, I'd just done in the first weekend of an intensive uh, marketing diploma. I was driving down the M4 from Maidenhead back down to Cotswolds where I was living and working as a marketing consultant. And I couldn't see the, the number plate in front of me. It was like all kind of um, bleary. I was in, in a, it was, it was lots of wind and, and um, driving rain. And I thought, oh, it's the rain, you know. But I was going, no, I, I really can't see the number plate. And so I slowed down 
and I kept into the inside lane. And, you know, I don't get too worried about stuff, but it's kind of like I started to go blind. And it's not great driving at, you know, 60, 70 miles an hour on a motorway in the rain after a really intensive weekend where you work 24 hours for, you know, nonstop two or three days. And um, I really, I really took it easy on the back roads back to um, uh, Stroud or just outside Stroud where we're living. I got home Sunday evening and I said to my wife, Jackie, I go, God, you know, I'm, I can't see. Everything's bleary and I feel really tired. You know, what's going on? She goes, well, any other symptoms? Uh, I'm going to say now, I'll say it a lot of times, my wife is super practical. Like I've seen her cry maybe four times in 30 years. You know, she doesn't do emotion. So I go, um, well, yeah, I'm really tired. I'm eating a lot, but, you know, I, I mean, my, my my weight's dropping through the floor. I mean, I know that because as a climber, I weigh myself at least once or twice a day. I'm fanatical about my weight. Um, I've got no energy. Uh, I'm drinking tons. I'm just so thirsty and I'm peeing and peeing. And it's like, oh my goodness, what's going on? She goes, uh, sounds like diabetes to me. I go, well, what's that? She's an ex-paramedic. So she knew a bit and she goes, yeah, I think it's, uh, have you, she said, have you got any other symptoms? I said, yeah, I'm sort of, I've got, you know, like itchy, you know, crutch. And she goes, yeah, that's pretty normal. Yeah, when you're diabetic, you pee out lots of uh, sugar and that c- c- can create a fungal infection. I'd better go and see the doctor. Anyway, went uh, next day, Monday, I went to see my doctor, Mike Stroud, uh, in our local uh, Minchinhampton clinic. Uh, I go, you know, uh, Mike, I think I've got, I think I've got diabetes, and he goes, "Oh, Jerry, come on, yours fits a bloody fiddle. You've been overdoing it. Take a week off and just de-stress," which is a classic. Then things have changed, but then a doctor, healthcare professional response, and I go, "Well, actually, I'm more frightened of my wife than I am of you. I need a blood test, and I'm not leaving here until you agree to give me one." He goes, "All right." Um, so anyway, uh, two days later, Wednesday, I go in for the blood test in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I got one of those calls. I've had a few in my life, but that was definitely one of them. And the lady said, you're 30 millimoles of sugar. The average is four. You're highly, um, you, you've got high levels of uh, blood glucose, uh, almost definitely type 1 diabetic. Come in this afternoon. It's emergency. And we'll give you your first shots. And that was the start of my diabetic uh, life. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I say I'm a diabetic because it defines me. I mean, I've broken my neck twice. I've been avalanched. I've had people die in front of me. I've been chased by polar bears. I've been directly struck by lightning. I've had a lot of shit go on. And that's before I t- talk about the military stuff. And yet diabetes is tough and probably the toughest thing that I've had to deal with. And so I define myself by my condition uh, in terms of a title, but I don't let it define my life. And I'm really, really uh, sure that I adapt my diabetes to my life. Uh, So I'm an adventurer with diabetes. I'm not a diabetic who sort of does a little bit now and again. And when you were first diagnosed, I mean, I've just spent three weeks in Iceland with three guys with spinal cord injuries who were all told, you know, they needed to adjust their lifestyles and they were never going to do anything interesting ever again. And they just crossed Fatnayokul, largest ice cap in Western Europe, first spinal, uh, first disabled team to do so. 
And so, you know, this is something at the forefront of my mind at the moment. What were you told by the healthcare professionals about what your life was going to be? And how did you react to that? Uh, Stop climbing and badly. (laughs) In that order. Um, Yeah, they said, you know, Jerry, yeah, you can still do a bit, but you've got to give up the expeditions and the new routes. You know the difference between, you know, a commercial trip when you're guided up a mountain and when you go out and do a new route. I mean, they are totally chalk and cheese. And I was doing new extreme routes around the world, big wall, high altitude. And they're going, yeah, that's kind of, you know, you don't want to be doing that. So uh, just, you know, um, just take it easy, you know, get into it. You've got a lot to learn. But, yeah, stop the climbing, really. Um, And it took me... Well, my mates would say three to four days. I was pretty down. It doesn't take me too long. I'm super optimistic. And I go, "Mm, no one, the only person who's actually going to tell me to stop climbing is me. And uh, and so I didn't. Uh, And I did a lot after then in terms of proving to myself and to my family and to everybody around me that you can live a full in fact, rich life, even with a chronic condition like type 1 diabetes. Yeah. That's interesting. When you said three to four, I thought you were going to say years. <laughs> um, so what did you do? I think, you know, it would have been easy to just say, oh, well, I'll take some time. I'll focus on my health. Maybe I'll go on a little trip to Chamonix and do some easy routes. What did you do? Uh, I went to Avon Gorge and tried to climb a yellow edge, which is an E3 um, with my mate Chris Parkin. Uh, should have run up it. Uh, and halfway up, I uh, got a hypo. And uh, it's just something I'm writing about at the moment. And um, it's it was pretty bad. I mean, I spent... I could feel literally halfway up this route, and if, you, and if you've done it, it was on exploding galaxy walls. You know, it's pretty crappy rock. Protection's not great. It's not that hard as like 5C, but it's, you know, it's, it, you've, got to, you, you've got to keep moving. And, and like I said, the protection's not great. So um, I just realized I couldn't move up. I couldn't move down. I could feel the energies just draining out of my arms. And so I tried to wheedle this little nut. It's like a number one DMM walnut. It's like the size, a little piece of metal the size of my thumb into this crack because I thought, well, if I get that in, I'm going to stop a ground fall. And if I did have a ground fall, it would definitely be broken legs or worse. So I'm wheedling this little nut in, and I must have spent ages. Probably it felt to me like half an hour. In reality, it was probably like five minutes, but it was forever. And Chris below me was going, Jerry, what the fuck? And I go, I can't, I just can't, I can't move up. And I got this nut in and then I just dropped onto it. And luckily it held. I was totally gone. He lured me down. And classic Chris, classic climber's retort was, well, you better lose some lard, mate. And um, <laughs> which I loved. Like, basically, you thought I was overweight and, you know, I was not up to it. And that was my first proper hypo, um, hypoglycemic attack, uh, when your blood sugars are low whilst climbing. And I wasn't prepared. I didn't have any uh, cereal bars uh, in my chalk bag. And I learned. And from that day on, I never go anywhere ever without food supplies. And... 
most most healthcare professionals, most people with diabetes, most people who care for people with diabetes will go, well, that's pretty normal. But, you know, I learn by doing. And pretty much since the first days that I was I was diagnosed, I I went out and I tried. If I was into mountain biking, I'd go out for 20 minutes and I'd go out for an hour and then I'd go out for five hours. I'd just build it up, you know, whatever I was doing and learned and recorded and just tried to understand this condition, which is complex because the condition changes. I started off in 2001 with two injections, right? Um, two injections in the day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. And it was a mix of slow acting, three hour profile and uh, long, uh, sorry, slow acting, um, 10 hour profile and fast acting, three hour profile, insulin all mixed together. And you in, uh, inject in the morning, inject in the evening. I now inject seven times a day or more fast and, and slow acting. But I've learned that over 20 years and I've learned how my body reacts and my body's changing. So, yeah, I, I, I had a lot to learn, but I approached it as, well, climbing is full of challenges. It's just another challenge. It's another thing to overcome. Um, I always think climbers who climb with glasses, for instance, do really well because glasses are a pain, right? But, um, you know, people do. Some of the best climbers, Mick Fowler being one of them, climbs with glasses and he deals with it. So, yeah, you know, it was, it, it was, it was, just, le- it was just learning to overcome that barrier. Sorry, that's a long answer. <laughs> no, no, it's fascinating. And I think, I don't know, you know, I think self-definition is a very important thing. Do you, would you, the, the term I'm hearing a lot at the minute is kind of adaptive adventurer. That's how these guys with spinal cord injuries um define themselves or describe themselves and some of them one guy's in a chair he skied you know a couple of the guys can walk but they have bladder bowel sexual dysfunction issues do you consider yourself an adaptive adventurer yeah it's a good question and uh i suppose i suppose the answer is yes and no um i never thought diabetes would stop me I've always had a lot of self-belief, and that's really comes from the Marines. Um, but I just, I, I am adaptive, and I always tell my climbing partners, and they always carry a backup of my kit. But I don't think of, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm handicapped. I just think, well, this is just something I've got to deal with. And um, I think the image of yourself in your mind as you adventure whatever you're doing is really important and the image I have in my mind is I'm Jerry Gore you know and I like doing stuff and I do a lot of stuff and mostly the people who 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 are with me in fact pretty much all of them except one guy do glacier who I'll mention a bit later they're all non-diabetic and they still struggle a lot so yeah you know i um i i i've adapted to my condition but i haven't let it define me uh, i'm still jerry gore uh i'm jerry gore type 1 di- diabetic but i'm still jerry gore i don't know does that make sense yeah it does and i think it, you know we, we like polarity don't we of like yes or no i am this i am that but actually it's significantly more complex than that more often than not and how, how much, when you were first diagnosed, I, I think these days, I'm not saying it's easy for somebody who would, to be, who, would di- 
who would be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes now at all. But I think there's a lot more research done. There are a lot of people like yourself out there who someone could get in touch with, ask lots of questions, find a little bit of mentorship. Was there, were there visible kind of role models is a silly way to phrase it, but people that you could relate to, communicate with, talk to about, okay, how do I get back into climbing big, hard, scary mountains with this condition? Or were you having to break that trail yourself? Um, Okay, well, the first thing I want to say is I instinctively, and it was instinctively, went out and said to my nurse, uh, practice nurse, who who first, you know, helped me with my condition, Jan Haddon, a great lady, I said, I want to meet other diabetics. I want to do that. It was was just instinctive. I'm a team player. Uh, I've always been in groups. You know, you talk to your peers, right? Peer support is just essential for this condition. I've learned far more from peers than I have from anything else, really. You know, because you have to deal with this thing every minute of every hour of every day. There's no weekends off. There's no rest days. You're on it all the time. And so, yeah, um, I sought out peers. But the thing that just clicked in my mind, and it just was, you know, I was two or three months in. And then uh, I'm really into the Olympics, always have been fascinated by, by that whole movement and athletes and blah, blah, blah. And I read about Sir Steve Redgrave. So he got five gold medals at five successive Olympic Games on his fifth Games, uh, he won the gold medal as a type 1 diabetic by about half a second. Now, if he can manage his blood sugars to that degree of world-class ability, uh, what's my problem? I mean, firstly, I didn't know that. And secondly, that's an amazing attitude to take. Well, I think it's it's pretty normal, isn't it? I mean, if you've got someone like Redgrave, who, you know, I mean, he's just amazing. I mean, to do five successive games, you've got to prepare and get yourself to scratch and get gold um, every four years. That that discipline, that effect on your body, that ability, I mean, it's just off the scale. God, people talk about, I've done this, I've done this, I'm a legend. That's a legend. That is a legend. He is a legend and he did it with diabetes. So I'm going, yeah, right. Well, that's me done. Uh, No excuses, better get on with it. And I suppose, I mean, you might disagree, but though there are huge parallels between an Olympic athlete like Redgrave and elite level expedition going mountaineers, because you spend all that time training, all that time building, 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 consolidating fitness, mental fitness and skill and experience and then you go out and rather than a physical arena you know your arena is a first ascent or a hard mountain somewhere I suppose it's a brilliant um not like personal role model as in you know you know him but as a as an example to follow I guess he's perfect in that sense he he is perfect although this is my pitch for saying all new route expedition climbers are all brilliant Olympic athletes because uh, they're not, but they should be. Um, Steve Redgrave, massive, massive respect. Any any athlete, any anybody who goes to Olympics, massive respect. But they've got everything around them. They've got all the support, the help, the drugs, the information, the nutrition, everything. 
When we go to the Karakoram or Baffin Island or Greenland or southern Patagonia or wilds in the middle of uh, Tibet, wherever, there's nothing. I mean nothing. And you know that as well as anybody. And it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's Olympic-level uh, endurance and hardship, but without the support. So actually, we're better. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, different maybe <laughs> but, uh, that's me that's old school i'm old i'm 62 but um yeah it's not better it's different uh it, and it's okay i'm gonna use this word but it, i think it totally is it's tougher it must be tougher you know i mean um uh, we'll, we'll talk about it a bit later but uh, my mate who just died on k2 uh, rick allen you know terrible situation i was with him just before he died I mean, his first route in the Hindu Kush in the 80s was 12 days. That's 12 days with another guy called Nick Kekus, another legend. They just go off for 12 days on a mountain. And for the last three or four of those days, there was no food. And for the water, they're sucking on, on snow at altitude with no even hope of rescue. And it's like, that's beyond the Olympics, I think. I think that's way beyond, you know, most things. Um, well, that's, I think that's where we start to lose the ability to make comparison because, <clears throat> you know, it's almost obvious to say, but operating, operating in those mountains is difficult, dangerous, tough games, as you say, um, risky, you know, dangerous. But to operate as an elite athlete in that arena is a whole different game because... Mm. You know, there's a dice rolling element, um, but also, you know, it is you're an elite level athlete in your own right when you're operating at that level. But you're also, you know, I mean, dancing with you know some serious serious risk. And you know, I I don't do that sort of thing. I've I've only done it well once, but um, or maybe a few more times than once. But it, <laughs> it I don't know how to explain this. I think it's the ultimate arena. I mean, there's that there's that quote that doesn't work anymore and it's not very progressive and you can't really say it in 2023, but it's a Hemingway quote, I think. He said, yeah. um, you know the one I'm going to say, there are three sports in the world, motor racing, bullfighting and mountain climbing, all the rest are games. And, you know, I don't agree with the first two anymore, but um, I get the point. And, and, think- and, and, and you know, I, I love that quote, but even if you look at it, the first two have got all the backup and support you could want in the world. In a ball, in a ball ring, you've got a thousand people who are just there if you get hurt. In, in Formula One, it's so well controlled. You get a scratch and there's an ambulance, right? So yeah, even there, if you do want to take those as the top three, whatever, climbing's way above that, just in terms of support. Because you know. I want to talk to you a bit about mental training because people don't talk about mental training, but I train a lot my brain for climbing, right? And when you think about, you know, the brain leads the body, it's obvious that why wouldn't you train your brain rather than your body? Everybody focuses on the body. It's all about the brain. Anyway, that's another story. But, but you know, um, one of the biggest problems on these expeditions, you're doing world-class, elite-level endurance stuff, and there's no... There's no support or rest for your brain. It's you and your partner. And if your partner's ill or sick or has a bad day, you're alone, you know. 
Um, and that's, yeah. I mean, you could call it the ultimate, but it's certainly different. <laughs> well, I think it would be interesting to talk about your kind of early life as a sort of young man, because there's, you know, I've done 150-ish of these interviews now, and it's very regularly the ex-Marines specifically who talk about the brain. Oh, interesting. And I how much do you think your your fascination with mental training and brain training um, and your focus on that side of performance comes from your background as a Royal Marine officer? And I'm going to say so much came from my training. I love the Marines. I was only there for a short time. I did a short service commission. I'll be quite open about it. I wasn't a lifer. Um, I loved it because of what it gave me. The training, God, they were spending hundreds of thousands on us. Um, and I I really appreciate that. <laughs> I mean, I use those skills I learned as, a, as an officer every day, pretty much. Leadership skills, lead by example, always be out in the front, you know, lead from the front, not from the back. I mean, just classic stuff, but so many other things. But um, I'm going to give you a quick story now about mental side. Uh, one of, uh, I did my Greenberry twice. The first, the first thing I want to thing I say is that um, the first night of training uh, uh, down at Limpston uh, Commander Training Centre, uh, they beasted us. The training team got us out and beasted us. And uh, we did lots of games, mud runs and hose downs and rope climbing and all sorts of stuff, just beasting, trying to see, you know, trying to crack us really early first night, bit of a nice introduction. And, um, and then we had a game of British Bulldogs and I was last man standing and I put my foot in a rabbit hole and twisted all the ankle or all the ligaments in my ankle and my right ankle. Um, being military, being medical, it wasn't diagnosed. I'd actually broken my ankle and I only found that out. But anyway, I had three days in sick bay. And so I, you know, I carried on. So I started my Royal Marine training for my green berry with a broken, broken ankle. I've now got, it's now arthritic. I've got two, two screws for it, but that's another story. Um, but one of the things that, that happened to me um, was during the uh, commando test, you have to do a thing called a nine-mile speed test, which is you run with boots, webbing, and rifle nine miles, and it's fast. You have to do a set time, and honestly, I can't even remember, but it's fast. And you basically run the flats and um, and the downhills, and you hike the uphills. And it's round Dartmoor. It's only nine miles. It's you have to do the thirty miler after that. But you know, it's, it's one of the, the tests you have to do. It's back to back tests. And we're coming down this hill, and the bats are much taller. I'm small. I'm only like five foot nine or something. And um, uh, we're running down this 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 hill in a squad. We're doing this greenberry test, and we're all really tired. And I just, to me, they were sprinting. I mean, they were, because they were such tall guys, six foot plus. I was, I was sprinting, and I couldn't sprint. And I thought, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna move to the side now. I'm just gonna pass out, and they'll just carry on. And you know, uh, I'll do it again. I'll do it again. I'll do it another time. And then my brain said, Jerry, if you pass out now and just fall off to the side. You're going to have to do this again, and you'll be more knackered, and you won't be doing it with this team. You'll be doing it with another team. And you just need to hang in there because – I've got a lump in my throat even when I say it – because you can. And that was my brain very clearly talking to me, probably for one of the first times in my life, saying, I'm in control, i.e., 
the brain. I'm in control, not your body. You listen to me and you're going to carry on. And it's, it's emotional, but you're going to carry on. And guess what? I did. And I sprinted down that hill and I got to the end and I did pass out and they had to, you know, feed me and resuscitate me, but I did it and I passed it. And, and that, that's my brain, you know? And ever since then, I've always thought it's the brain that leads the body. So many stories of, you know, climbers going without food and sustenance for days, uh, carrying on, you know, and the body's given up, but the brain is still strong. And my brain is pretty strong. And that's what keeps me going. And that's what I think keeps most endurance athletes going. And so why wouldn't you train your brain? But I think positive self-talk or negative self-talk are so, I mean, it's again, it's obvious, but they're so critical. You know, I'm very lucky. I think it's learned behavior for me through hanging out with some of the best athletes in the world and always being the least fit member of elite teams. I've had to just keep up and I've learned from them to kind of grizz and bear it. And, you know, this will end, this will end, you can do this. But that positive self-talk, not everybody has it and not everyone's capable of it. Is it learned for you or are you lucky that as a child you were kind of, were you like that as a kid and a teenager or where did it come from? So difficult to answer that because, of course, the answer to that question is, uh, you know, many different, many different areas. Um, I didn't have a great relationship with my dad. He gave me a hard time, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I... I reflect on this a lot now, and I think one of the things it comes from is putting my hand up. What do I mean by that? I volunteer for everything. I want to have a go. I want to have a go. I want to have a go. I played trumpet in the school uh, orchestra. I sang in school choirs. I was always the, did the lady parts in uh, Gilbert Sullivan operas. Uh, I did rugby. I did football. I did kayaking with the, the scouts. Uh, I did so many different things. And when you keep putting yourself forward and you keep trying stuff and often you keep and you do stuff that, takes you out of your comfort zone, you get stronger. And how do you develop mental resilience? I mean, what is mental resilience? Well, it's just the ability to go, I can do this. Uh, I mean, what else can it be? You know, and, um, and, and, and you know you can do it because you've done a lot of stuff before. And you build on it and you build it up and up and up. My first expedition, like I said, I was 16. We traversed Funnily enough, what you're saying, we traversed the Vatna Yokel Ice Cap, Southeast Iceland. I was with the British Schools Exploring Society. Great trip. Uh, most people whinged. I bloody loved it. Um, we live, we ate on, we ate uh, dehydrated chicken supreme. God, I hated that stuff by the end. But, you know, um, <laughs> it was just the whole package. It was amazing uh, views, not amazing food, um, uh, tough hikes, just what a slice of life. And, um, and I got stronger from it. And, and then I went on and then I climbed um, next year, I did uh, Mont Blanc, I think. And, you know, that was a real epic because I hadn't done anything that high. And I was only 17 or 16 or no, 17, I think. And, and, you know, so it goes on. Um, and um, yeah, you get mental resilience by doing a lot of stuff. And that makes you mentally and physically strong. I mean, I, 
you know, there's there's a lot of diehard Marines who go, no, you've got to really push yourself through it and, you know, only the toughest survive and all that sort of stuff. But I don't really believe in that. Um, I, I, I just believe in doing stuff, having a go and and learning and getting stronger from whatever the experience is. Yeah, I can relate to lots of it. Um, <laughs> um, so why do it? I think that's, you know, you say most people whinged on the crossing. You're 16, you're walking across the Vatney Ice Cap. What was it about it that made you think, oh, yeah, this is for me. I like this. I enjoy this. It's not fun while you're doing it, but you loved it. Why? And so, why have you spent 60 years doing it? Yeah. So, I mean, the first answer is, you know, uh, I'm pretty high energy. I've got too much energy. I think, you know, if I've got diagnosed with anything, I get diagnosed with too much bloody energy. And I like doing stuff, you know, like I've just outlined at school. I did tons of stuff. wasn't very good at any of it, but I did a lot of it because I like doing things. Um, and uh, I like a challenge. I've always liked a challenge. And um I didn't really know at the time, was it a challenge? All I knew was this was something I, I spent, when I was 15, I dug out a duck pond. It was huge to raise money to go on that trip because it was all self-supporting. I had to raise money. And I dug out this bloody duck pond. I was up to my knees uh, in shit, literally uh, all summer stinky. And I raised the money and I went on the trip. But I was I was obsessed. I was fascinated with adventure, travel, climbing, mountains. It was just in there. Um, uh, and, and I don't know where that comes from. My dad's not military. He's businessman, uh, now, well, was farmer, now dead. Um, he really wasn't into climbing. He never, he's never actually seen me climb. He never came to the crag, he never did anything. Um, it definitely didn't come from a mother. Uh, she's not into anything like that. Uh, I just got an interest in open world uh, places and I love a challenge and I love yeah just putting one foot in front of the other and and moving forward uh, whether it's climbing walking skiing biking whatever actually also a bit of rally driving but that's another story um but um but no you know uh it was just there and it's innate and it's it's deep and uh, I just love it and I love adventure and I like I suppose I love extreme and I never knew I love extreme and I'd not even, I wouldn't even call myself an extreme climber compared to some people. Um, but I am extreme and I do extreme stuff and it just defines me and it's in within me. I mean, you know, last week a friend of mine said, oh, you know, Jerry, he, 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 his mate, Dave Pegler, he lives over in, um, uh, over uh, near Southampton, and I, I live, you know, Salkham, Southern Devon. And he goes, we should meet and do the East Devon Way. We could do it over a couple of days. Uh, it's 185 kilometers, 3,000 meters of elevation. Let's just do it, and 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 we'll do it together. Anyway, bottom line is he can't do it, and I just said I'm going to do it in a one and 24 hours, and I'm going to do it uh, driving back from my mother. So I'm going to go over next week and see my mother. We'll do the coronation together. I can't believe I just said that, but anyway, we'll do that. And um, and then on the way back, I'll stop out of Exeter, I'll park my car, get on my bike and cycle 185 kilometres through the night, get back in my car and drive down to Salkham. And, you know, and I'll do it alone, type 1 diabetic, blah, blah, blah. But 
I've got to that level because I've always been doing lots and lots of sort of extremish stuff. And, and I just go, yeah, why not? And I don't question it. But when I say that to people, they go, what? What, really? Like, you're really going to do that? I go, yeah, why not? Do you want to join me? Because I can't see it. I just can't see that I'm any different. And I've always said, if I can do it, anybody can do it. And honestly, Matt, there is no lying what I just said. I totally believe that. I'm not a brilliant athlete. I haven't got a great VO2 max. I've been measured on everything. I'm really pretty standard and uh, I'm pretty short and I've got fat legs and that's about it. And, um, and, and yet I want to do stuff and I don't understand why wouldn't anybody else want to do it. So I'm going to dig a little bit. I'm sorry, I, you know, I ask all this with kindness, but you know, you mentioned difficult relationship with your father and stuff like that. Maybe things have changed or maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree. How much of your motivation to do this stuff, let's start in the early days, was intrinsic, definitely foreign of you and how much of it was a kind of middle finger or an extrinsic, I'm going to show you or I'm going to show someone else, I'm going to prove something to other people? Well, this is where it gets interesting because on the first hand, I'd say I've got low self-esteem. I'm always trying to impress people. I'm always trying to, I'm a giver. I want to uh, make people, um, you know, uh, I, I want people to praise me. I've always been like that. I like people to say, well done, well done, Jerry. And at the same time, I'm completely selfish. and I just know what I want to do and get on and do it. And um, I'm not proud of anything really but all I know is that I don't do stuff really do stuff to impress stuff uh, to impress people I do it because I really want to do it but at the same time I hope people go hmm, yeah not bad mate um so you know I'm so into psychology it's so interesting but um uh, I honestly don't do these clients because I hope someone's going to read what I do and put me on the front cover of a newspaper. As you know, I've done lots of new routes, big war, whatever, all around the world. Most people will never even have heard of these places where I go to. You know, I've done new routes in Baffin Island. I say that to people, they go, well, where is Baffin Island? Have they got, I mean, that's the last great frontier on the world. It's amazing. Um, and I've done routes there. It'll never, they'll never get a second ascent. I haven't written an article. I haven't done anything. And, and I have written a few climbing articles. And I know climbers who do far more than I do. And they literally don't write anything. But I'm really not doing those routes to impress other climbers. There's no way you can spend 18 days on a big wall in Arctic uh, Canada in minus 25 climbing really dangerous shit. Um, and the only people, only things you see around you for six weeks are polar bears at the bottom waiting for you to fall off. Um, you don't do that. Uh, with, and there's no camera team. There's nothing. Uh, you don't do that for other people. You do that for yourself because you love it. Um, and I've done new routes in Baffin Island and Patagonia and elsewhere. No one's known about those routes. Now, I've put my CV together and I've got a website and you can see what I've done. But that's all subsequent, you know. I mean, I've been doing this game for a long time. Uh, I don't go out to do a route to tell other people. And yet, I do I do have self, uh, low self-esteem and I do want, when I'm talking to people, to go, oh, yeah, okay, mate, well done. And, of course, now... I do want to inspire 
others with you know chronic health conditions like others with type 1 diabetes others with heart complaints or, or whatever so i'm doing it to inspire but i'm not doing it you know because i want people to pat me on the back does that answer the question yeah <laughs> It does, but I, I get this kind of honestly wonderful sense that you're searching for the answer while you're talking to me about it, which I like. And I think there's an honest self-awareness. There's a, there's a, there's a true self-awareness that I respect there because I think lots of people would either lie or not know the answer. And um, I'm curious, if I may, to try and understand why you have low self-esteem. Uh, because my bar's pretty bloody high, and um, you know, um, I mean, I'm I'm thinking of a guy now, and I wish my brain's so crap, and I can't I can't think of his name. I'm going to say he's like 33. He's won the PLA door twice. He did a new route on Latok. Do you know what I'm talking about English guy? Tom. Tom. Yeah, yeah. Now I've met Tom. I've chatted with him and stuff. Tom is just amazing. Uh, one of my oldest, longest partners was Twid, Mike Twid-Turner. What hasn't Twid done? Now, when, you're, when your mates and the people you hang around are people like Tom and Twid and Louise Thomas, who I think she's amazing, uh, you go, yeah, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I love the 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 hero the the unsung hero one of my great heroes is dave hamilton have you heard of dave hamilton don't think so no exactly i'm so happy you said that was the right answer matt well done you get uh, you you get you get top marks in in this interview um dave hamilton makes kenton cool look like an underachiever dave hamilton has guided everest 12 times okay kenton's done it 16 He's also done, Dave Hamilton has guided the seven summits four times each. He's also ski traversed unsupported the Karakoram in winter. He's been doing stuff like that back to back every year, four, five, six expeditions since the mid-1980s. And who knows about him? He's actually the top was the top um, Everest guide for Jagged Globe, but he just does stuff all the time and he's a tall willowy scott um but you know he he just he just does expeditions i mean a lot of them do you know who sarah mcnair landry is no see i think she's the great one of the greatest living explorers her and her partner eric boomer i mean they skied in to baffin um climbed the first ascent of some outrageous big wall there and then skied back out to a river. They dragged their kayaks with them, and then they kayaked, descended out of Baffin Island to the sea. And that was their summer holiday. Brilliant. They didn't. They didn't talk about it. They didn't. There's no. They just do it. They just get shit done all the time. Yeah. And I know another guy, Stewie Holmes, who pretty much every year. I mean, he goes on a mountaineering expedition every year, and pretty much every year, what he does is he prints out a Google map satellite image because that's the best map available of some remote part of india where all the peaks have five number names because no one's yeah. got around to naming them yet and he climbs you know eight first ascents over six weeks and paraglides off the top of all of them none of them are going to win him a pile d'or 
but that's not why he goes. Yeah, He's yeah. just out there with his mates having raw, real, you know, 50s-style adventure, getting stuff done, no chance of help or rescue, jumping off the top of the paraglider home in time for tea. Um, that impresses me. Yeah, yeah. That really <laughs> Me. Yeah, yeah, and no, I'm totally with you and seen a lot of people like that. And 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 those are the people who should be saying, look at me. Uh and they don't, they do the opposite. I've, I've seen the, the same in the Marines, I've seen the same with special forces, I've seen the same with a lot of people who are just brilliant athletes. They'll go and do the Bob Graham round and they'll do it in pretty close to like the fastest time. And just, yeah, go back for tea and medals and that's it and not tell anyone. I yeah. love those people. And the great thing is there's lots of them out there. Yeah, that's the, that's the, it's not ironic. It's like, it's the paradox of it is like they don't want to be known yeah. and they shouldn't be because if they were, they'd change. And it's like, actually, they're, you know, as a filmmaker and a podcast host, I'd always try and, con these are the people I want to be talking to. These are the people I want to be making films about, but they don't yeah. want to do it a lot of the time. They're just, yeah, yeah. they can't even understand why I'm asking them. Yeah, yeah. I completely relate to what you're saying about low self-esteem. So I spend my life and career traveling with the fittest, fastest, most elite in the world. And I'm always, and I'm not being um, self-deprecating. I'm the least fit member of all of these elite teams. Um, yeah. The fattest member of every expedition, as somebody likes to put it. Um, and as a result, I'm always looking at these talented people thinking, well, why aren't I them? Why aren't I as fit as them, as fast yeah. as them, as good as them? Yeah. And you were saying, you know, you do that too. Well, why do we always look up at what's above and who's above? Why do we never look back at the version of ourselves that was and see all the things we've achieved and accomplished? You know, your CV that you've sent me is four pages long and each line is impressive. Why don't we look downhill? Why are we obsessed with the people who are better than us or the person of us, the person that could exist that doesn't? Well, I think um, I think there's there's some very good reasons for that. And, and the first thing I would say is I'm not obsessed with other people, but other people help me get to where I get want to be. Now, I want to make the point that I do this stuff because I love it. I love it. That's really important. I love suffering. I love views. I love com camaraderie. I love overclimbing a technical pitch that I didn't think I could get up in the middle of a 10-day climb. I love it all. But um, I, I still don't think I am, but I certainly wasn't a talented climber. My best on-site was like E6, but I was climbing with on-siteers E8 or E9, you know. And... Um, I learned adventure by doing stuff with people who are better than me. And it's such an obvious thing. You're never going to improve if you go out with someone who's the same as you. How can you improve? You go out with someone who's better than you, or if you're lucky, way better than you, who tolerates you being along. And of course, climbing is, it's a two-person thing or a four-person thing, but it's, it's, rarely solo i'm not into soloing i think that's specialist it's i mean i have soloed a bit it's just not my thing because i love sharing but <clears throat> um if you're on a two-man rope or a two-woman rope or whatever one of you is probably going to be better than the other one and in my case the other one has always been better than me so i'm learning i'm getting stronger because they're dragging me out something that i couldn't have done without them <clears throat> so i have no problem as long as I'm open and honest, which I am, hopefully that comes across, 
uh, and go, yeah, will you climb with me? Um, because I want to do that, and I don't think I can without you. Um, but I do it, and then I get to that level, and then I'll do something at the same or harder. And it's the same in a way with diabetes. I learned from other diabetics because very early into my diagnosis, 2004, I met a woman called Nikki Wallace, who is amazing, and she put together Mountains for Active Diabetics, or MAD, of which we all are. And all these uh, MAD diabetics were all running around, jabbing away, um, all doing outdoor stuff, climbing, cycling, skiing, whatever. And then we meet once a year. My first meet with these people were in Plasibrenna, North Wales. There's 30 diabetics. We all go to the pub and we all start injecting. And, and the local people around thought, fuck, this is a drug, drug, um, drug pushers convention or something. You know, it was hilarious. But it, it's normalizing the condition, which is brilliant. It's saying, actually, this is not something you have to shy away from or, or put it in a closet. Be open about it. Be proud of it. Stick the needle in and laugh. And um, I'll get on to laughter in a minute because that's really important technique as well. But um, but so I'm climbing and skiing and biking, whatever, with other diabetics who aren't great athletes, but they are great diabetics. And I'm learning from them how to be a great diabetic and how to manage my condition. So, you know, getting back to the first point, you know, why do we put ourselves through it? Why do we go out with people who are better than us and affects our self-esteem and stuff? You know, one of the reasons is I use that because it helps me get to where I want to be. But it's... Again, this might not be relevant to your experience, but reading your CV, it might, is define better. You know, I'd say I've been, I've been a leader of high-functioning teams. Every single member of that team was fitter, stronger, um, better climber, to use a specific right. example than me. But I brought skills to that table that were arguably better than their skills in that corner. Is that true of you too? You know, I see leader written next to a lot of your first ascents or expeditions. Is that your kind of power skill? Um, and is that what gives you the confidence to join a team where you're the weakest in big inverted commas member? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, our WAP uh, or Wall of Pain um, new route on the South Tower of Piney, uh, 2013, uh, with Callum Musket, Twid Turner, um, that was me spending a year of my life, amongst many other things, writing letters. That, that trip started in... Kendall, as they so often do, 2012, uh, November, Andy Kirkpatrick, myself and Twid, are all, we're all mulling around and going, well, what would you like to do next year? Uh, I know, we'll do a new route on the South Tower of Piney. There's only three of these pillars, and this will be the, one of the last great lines on those three pillars. Yeah, we'll go and crack that. A, a year later, uh, the team had totally changed. I got totally new sponsors, blah, 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 um, but we went out and did it. And I did a lot of that organization. And Twid will always say it's all about the team. Now, Twid, Twid is a brilliant climber. He's very talented. He's just on it. Um, but, you know, he will admit it's a team effort. So on that team, Callum was way – I mean, he was – you know, he's – I mean, Callum's unbelievable um, athlete. You know, he's like – he's like – 
on citing 8A. He's brilliant. I mean, he, when he was 15, the first time he climbed ice with Devil's Appendix, that's the first time he put axes in his bloody hands, right? Now, Devil's Appendix is a really hard, if not the hardest route in North Wales on mix, and it hardly ever forms. It took Mick Fowler like three or four years because he'd climb a bit and then it would melt and then he'd climb another bit. And, you know, it took it. Callum just rocked up and did it. And that was the first time he put tools in his hands. He's just brilliant anyway. Um, so, um, so uh, you know, we, you know, we did that route. I was definitely the weakest technical climber, um, but that route, that expedition would have happened, wouldn't have happened without me. Yeah, and and uh, you know, it's a really important point after a long conversation about you know self esteem issues, being weak, ego, all of that stuff. I think this is yeah. relevant, and this isn't a self help podcast, but bringing it round to like, well, why are you invited? Why do they say yes to you? And I mean that in a rhetorical sense because the answer is now obvious. But I guess, <laughs> well, I'll just ask you bluntly. Do you think those people respect you? Do you feel respected by your peers? Oof. Don't know. Not sure I care. Uh, long as they keep saying yes and coming out with me. Uh, it's a good question, but... Do climbers really respect anybody? All the climbers, my generation, you know, all the climbers will go, yeah, he's all right, but what's he done on grit or whatever, you know? I mean, but I mean, you know, honestly, I mean, I'm not going to name names because I'll get them into, into, I'll get myself into trouble, but really world-class climbers will go of other world-class climbers. Yeah, but climbers are full of that. They're always putting people down and going, yeah, but you know, um, so Self-respect, you know, an athlete, a professional athlete will go, yes, hand on heart, I respect my competition and I, you know, he's or she's done really well and, you know, because they're professional athletes. Respect is earned, respect takes time, respect is deep. And I don't think climbers go, yeah, I'm going to climb with him because I respect him. You go, I'm going to climb with him, he's available, he's a nice bloke, uh, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't do really bad farts. And yeah, we'll. Uh, we'll. <laughs> I think. I think I'd do a trip with him. You know. So. Um, so yeah. You know. Respect. Uh, you. You know. You climb with people if they're available. If they're a good person. If you like being with them. But what's happened with me is, over the years, and this is getting off the point. But I used to climb with people who would literally get me where I want to be because. There wasn't many people who did the sort of things I wanted to do, so you have to climb with the best, and you might like them, you might not, but they would help you get you where you want to be. Now it's totally changed. I only climb, bike, adventure, whatever, with people who I like being with, and the people are more important than the objective, and that's really important. Um, uh, they still happen to be generally pretty good people, uh, pretty, pretty amazing athletes, but uh, I like spending time with them. And um, and that's really important for me now. Yeah. And it's obvious that, you know, lots has changed for you over the course of the 40-plus years you've been doing this stuff. But, and again, I ask this with kindness, and I'm deliberately not phrasing it sensitively because I sense that you get where I'm coming from, but to what extent did your diabetes diagnosis give you an excuse to stop trying to be the best in the world or not? <sighs> 
I've never been the best in the world. I've never tried to be the best in the world, but I've had objectives. Like the Shear 7, Twid and I did, which was to climb a classic hard new route, Big Wall or Alpine, on each of the seven continents. Um, but it wasn't because by doing that we would say we're the best in the world. By doing it, we'd go, that would be bloody amazing. That would be a real journey. And we get to climb some pretty cool shit. Um, but no one, you know, one of the other things you've got to learn as a climber is you're never the best climber. There's always someone better. And you have to learn that pretty early on. So what's the point? Um, and that gets back to the egotism thing and the arrogance thing, which I can't stand. Climbers in many ways are humble. Um, good climbers, real climbers, new route climbers, they're pretty humble in, in many ways because they just like doing stuff. And, you know, let's get back to Twid. We're talking about him a lot, but he is just probably... I mean, I just don't know anybody who's done that many new hard routes around the world. I don't know. I don't think anybody exists like that anymore. But, you know, you take Twid, he'll go, I'm not the best climber in the world, but I'm probably the most enthusiastic climber in the world. Does it matter? Let's go out. Do you want to do a route? That's what he wants to do. And that's why I, and I've got to say it, you won't like this, but I can't stand social media because it's all, look at me, I'm the best. It's all comparison. And comparison is toxic for human beings. We can't deal with it. And that's why it screws us up. And that's why, getting back to the kids I look after in, in uh, Southeast Asia, uh, you know, it's not good for them. They're just looking at lots and lots of pictures of either other kids or themselves. And it's all, oh, look at me, that, you know, turning their face one direction, the other direction. It's all, it's all comparison. And we're not good with that. It doesn't help us. Um, and so, you know, getting back to my self-esteem, I, I don't read climbing magazines or books or hardly anything. And I haven't done for ages because it doesn't really help me. I'm not really interested in about other people and what they've done. I'm really interested in doing what I want to do and to do it as well as I can and safely and securely and having fun and inspiring people and making sure I don't have any bloody hypos and I've got enough cereal bars. Um, but when I look at a mag, it's just saying, a magazine, it's just saying, I'm brilliant. <laughs> and I don't think that helps. <laughs> no, and I think, again, it's nuanced, but it depends how it's written and who it's written by and who it's written for. I think, you know, it's like Steve Redgrave is probably very intrinsically motivated, but if you read anything about him online, it'll just tell you how brilliant he is. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think Steve is a pretty humble guy. I've met him. I think he's actually pretty humble. I think that's his PR people. Because let's be honest, who wants to uh, pay, you know, 15, 20 grand for an hour's talk by Steve Redgrave if you don't think he's brilliant? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's, yeah, it's complicated and it's nuanced, as I say. But I think one of the interesting things about you, and again, I really relate to this, is that sense of camaraderie. It's not just about not wanting to solo. It's about wanting to experience these places with others. Yeah. Um, how much has that been a motivator for you? And, you know, again, frankly, how have you been affected by the loss of friends in the mountains, which is something people who play this game are unfortunately often all too familiar with? Um, so... I, um, well, I'm going to deal with the last question first uh, because my memory is so bad. Um, so uh, 
I'm definitely different from normal people in this respect. I I don't I don't I don't have the same I don't have the same emotional empathy or feelings um, that most people seem to have. So I've lost 17, 18 mates to to climbing. Um, every time I lose one, I go, that was really sad. I'm going to go to his uh, or her um, funeral. Uh, that was sad. And you go and you have a jar with a few mates and you talk some stories and you're on to the next onto the next gig, onto the next adventure. Because honestly, people who die in the mountains are the lucky ones. What do I mean by that? I mean they're doing they're living their dream. I've seen a number of people, more than ten, grow old slowly and die. It's not great. It's really not great. So um, so you go out when, like my mate Rick Allen, 68, K2, trying a new route, dead in seconds because the first avalanche, there were four. The first um, had a rock and it took him out and his, his head's hanging off his shoulders. And then the third, or the second one cut his ropes and he's down. He's dead. He's gone. He's had an amazing life. People, I still get emails being said, oh, sorry for your loss. Sorry, that's just not correct. I'm not sorry, and he's definitely not sorry. Um, you know, when we say, oh, I'm really sad, you're sad for yourself. You can't be sad for Rick Allen. He's dead. So, you know, all that stuff, um, I just have a different emotional level. You know, people say, well, how can you go on expeditions? Your kids are under five. You're, you've moved your whole family to southern French uh, France in a tiny little village where no one, uh, everybody speaks French, and you your wife can't speak French. Your kids can hardly speak French, and you go off to Serratorian, try go off to Serratorian and climb it with with Kenton Cool. How can you do that? Uh, and I go because I'm really open. I'm really honest. Always have been. My wife married a climber. She knows I'm a climber. She knows I I do expeditions, and I honestly thought if I did die on Serratory with my two young kids they'd be okay because their mother would support them. She's an amazing woman. She'd find another partner, and there's plenty of partners better than me. I'm not a great, I'm not a great dad. I go off on trips. I'm a diabetic. I have hypos and wake up in the middle of the night screaming and being a ter- horrible monster. You know, uh, they'll be okay. And, and people go, well, that's rubbish. I can't relate to that. And most people can't, but that's what I honestly think that, um, that, Human beings are so robust, and 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 the other thing I really think is I have to be true to who I am. I could stay at home. I could just spend all my time with my kids. I could just love them and and do nothing else. But I would die as a person inside, and I wouldn't be the father that I am. And I have an incredibly strong relationship to my kids. Both are doing incredibly well in their 20s. One's in Costa Rica, one's in London doing a PhD, 24, blah, blah, blah. And, and so I think what I've done is, is being true to myself and I'm not proud of everything. But, you know, you, you can't stop being who, who, who you are. And, and I, and I uh, honestly think that uh, that... That being who I am 
uh, and being honest about my emotions and my feelings for people or lack of is, is the truth. And if I lied and said, oh, I'm really sorry for your loss and I'm really sad about that and, oh, that's so, you know, I'd be lying because I'm not. If a kid is 10 years old, dies, falling through ice, that's sad. That's deeply sad. That's a young life that's lost. That's sad. But if it's a 30, 40, 50-year-old climber, they're living their dream and they're doing and, and are literally doing what they want to do. So why would I be sorry about that? I... I, you know, I did all my disclaimers at the start of the podcast that the audience don't get to hear, but the one I didn't give you, which I should have, is if we disagree, let's disagree and let's do it agreeably and let's have some fun with it and let's explore it. And I think the reason I bring that up is... You disagree. I, I really disagree with some of the things you've said, but I also recognise that they're all so personal and we're not the same person and we have our own views on it and... You know, so it's okay to disagree, but I don't. I I'm really wary and skeptical of the they died doing what they love thing, because I've known a few people who've been killed in the mountains, and it affected me. But that's selfish. That's of me. I get that. I get what you're saying there. I buy that. But what I don't buy is, I just think, what about their families? You know, they, and I get you saying, you know, whether it's a self-esteem thing, you saying your wife will find another partner who'll be better than you. You know, if I died in the mountains, I'd hope my wife remarried. I'm not one of those lunatics that wants her to be celibate forever. Um, but I don't know that they'd be better than me. I'd hope they would be for my kids, but God, I don't want to die in the mountains. I, I love the idea of being 80 years old. And I, I, you know, you're a bit older than me, quite a bit older than me. <laughs> You've seen You've seen people age, as you said, and there are certain world-class climbers out there who are getting older, who've got mental, um, you know, conditions, awful, awful things. But I just can't buy it. I can't buy the they died doing what they love thing. I mean, if you asked Rick Allen, the ghost of Rick Allen, if he could not be in that avalanche and die, what do you think he'd say? Um, I know what he'd say, because we discussed it a lot. I was really close. Rick had a really strong religious um, fervor. He was a strong Christian, and he was uh, he, he basically thought, you know, I'm going to heaven. And we had a long chat, literally the day, two days before he went up. And he basically said, look, Jerry, you know, uh, we've always agreed to climb together. Uh, we're not going to climb together on this. I'm, you know, I've, But basically what happened was it was like, uh, Rick and I wanted to, were planning a new route on Broad Peak, and this was back in 2020 under COVID. And uh, we put a team together. Um, that team, uh, one was in Australia, one was in Canada, and they couldn't make the trip in 2021. So we said, okay, we're going to go to K2. We're going to go to Broad Peak. We'll do a recce of the route on Broad Peak, and hopefully we'll summit K2. We'll raise some money for the charities that we're, we support, and... Um, and we'll, we'll climb together and we're absolute partners and blah, blah, blah. Three days before we go up to do with the climatize on Broad Peak, three days before we go up to, to do K2, um, uh, Jordi, oh, God, I forget his name. He's called the Pirate. He's a brilliant um, Spanish climber. 
I mean, he's done new, he pirates everything. You know, that's what he does. That's why it's called the pirate. You know, he just, I mean, Janu, stuff like that, you know, pirates. Unbelievable. Maybe I shouldn't even say that. Um, but, um, you know, he, he said, well, you know, I've looked at the East Face. There's a possibility of a direct line up to Camp 3 to cut out, you know, the, the normal route. So it would be a new route on East Face. Uh, who, are you up for it? Who's up for it? And he talked to me. He talked to Rick Allen. And he talked to um, an Austrian guide who was there at, at, the, at the time. Um, and uh, the, the Austrian and Rick said yes. I said no. I said, look. I don't think I'm strong enough for a new route. I said, I've got a lot of money to raise for my charity. I've got 50 grand to raise. Um, and I'm going to do, I'm going to stick to my guns. I'm going to go up the normal route. I also honestly thought the East Case, the East Face, as was most of the mountain, was not in great shape. I and mean, we would, an advanced base, we could hear the bloody avalanches. But anyway, um, they went off. He died. Um, he, um, he, he was convinced for, for years, you talked to Sandy Allen, he was convinced for years that, you know, God would look after him. He would go to heaven. Um, if, if the ghost of Rick Allen was here, he'd be going, yeah, no, happy with that. Really, really believe that. And, and I'm going to get back, um, and I'm, you know, we agree to disagree, but I'm really going to get back to that about watching old climbers get old. It's not pretty. I said to you, my knees are knackered. I'm going to really tell you about my body now. My left knee is arthritic to the point where I have injections every year. It's called hyaluronic, hyaluronic acid mixed with your blood platelets. And it's like pumping gunk into it. A lot of the guides in southern France where I live, they have the same. If I didn't have that, I wouldn't be able to bend my knee. My right ankle is fused. Um, my lower back, I've had choralgia and sciatica, and I have to do stretching every day just to move. Um, it's painful to do stuff, and I'm 62. Give me another 10 years, I don't think I want to be around. And certainly in another 20 years, it's horrible. And, you know, I've seen my mother grow old. I've seen my father die, grow old and die. He spent 10 years dying, my dad, uh, of cancer. I've seen lots of people grow old. Everybody goes, oh, you know, it's so lovely to see. It's not lovely. Those people are in pain every single day just to get to sleep. My mother has to have a cocktail of bloody tablets. She's still alive. I'm going to see her in a few days. Um, that quality of life has gone. And you can be brave and say, oh, you know, how long do you want to live? And I say that to people. And, of course, they can't answer that question. But I'm coming at this from a totally different emotional level or feeling. So we're never going to agree but I really come back to it. How long do you want to live? People hold on to their lives. I'm far more scared of not living my life today than ever I am of dying tomorrow. It's about today. It's about this minute. It's about talking to you now. I'm loving this, this interview and talking to you. But that's living. It's not about take the medication, be careful with your diet, keep your cholesterol low, don't do too much exercise. That's bollocks to me. It's about living your life. And I'm going to give my classic um, uh, statistic here. The average Brit in the, uh, the average Brit watches four and a half hours of television every night. That says everything. What do we do? We work, we go home, we have a TV dinner, and we watch TV. And the people listening to this podcast will go, no, we don't. We're adventurers. But you're not the 80%, you're the 20% or the 10% or the 5%. Most people do that. They don't live their lives. And it's opinionated and I'm judgmental, but I really believe that. And so what I say is 
Go out, live your life, do tons of stuff. And when you die, you die. But you can't, you can't think about it. You can't, you can't plan for it. You just have to do your best. Be very religious in your equipment, your organization, your preparation. Minimize the risks and go for it. And that's my attitude, whether you're playing chess or climbing Everest or whatever. Um, And that's what I really believe. And I have no time for people wrapping themselves up in cotton wool and trying to live to 150. Just no time. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not, I mean, I still disagree with some of it, but I get get that you think it, if that makes sense. I get that you believe it. And I think increasingly in society we're so quick to judge and say how dare he you know how dare he say those things well you believe it it's true of you you're not obligated to cry yourself to sleep every night over long lost pals um if we choose to that's our call and that's okay as well but i think i'm less interested in what other people think about what we think and i'm more interested in understanding you and your brain um i'm feeding you a little bit of mine just because it's interesting (laughs) but i think i it all changed for me when I became a dad. You know, before that, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to, I didn't want my mum to be sad, yeah. but I also didn't want to die. Yeah. Um, I have a two-year-old and a five-month-old. And so obviously I'm at that point where I am questioning expeditions yeah. and all of that. Stuff. And it's a, I've just been on a three-week trip that wasn't dangerous in any way, shape or form really, but I did walk a long way constantly thinking, am I still going to be doing this in five, ten years? And I think the answer is yes because I just can't stop. I don't want to stop. I don't, and I want my kids to see me living the authentic version of my life, but I really want them to grow up with me being their dad. Um, And I do think it would be a tragedy for them if I died. I don't want them to have that, and this might upset some people, but that Alison Hargreaves, Tom Ballard, you know, Tom was deeply affected by his mother's death, and I don't want my kids to grow up being those people traveling out to where he died to go and just be in that place. I don't want that. And um, I think, you know, people often say to me who don't play these games, oh, are you scared of dying? Are you not scared of dying? And and I always have my deliberately, you know, well-rehearsed answer, which is no, I'm not scared of dying. I just really, really don't want to. Um, I've, got to, I've got to come back to you on Alison Hargreaves. I used to climb with her. I knew her well. And I also knew her husband. Uh, and I could say a lot of bad things, and I'm not going to. I had to represent her on TV shows after a death because everybody was saying, how dare she as a mother? And I go, how dare you? What about fathers who die in the mountains? You know, you never criticize them. Anyway, we did that, all that stuff, the whole Alison Jane Hargreaves, should she have done that as a mother? Um I still come back to the to the I mean okay the reality is I've spent so much time with my children because I've always worked from home I've always been there I've gone to the gym classes and I've watched them get awards and you know I've seen them get podium positions skiing uh, I've watched them struggle and cry and have bad boyfriends and all sorts of stuff I've watched it all and we're very close um and that's a good thing and that's great but all the time I'm still living my life and I'm encouraging them to live theirs and I'm giving them everything I've got, every life lesson I've got, every every ounce of inspiration I've fed into them. My wife has done exactly the same times 10. Um, and, and that's important, but you go when you go. Um, you can go, you can die crossing the road and people go, yeah, 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 but it's true. 
I've seen people who literally, one day they're great, the next day they're dead. They just had a heart attack. They've just had whatever. It happens. Life is short. And something that the Marines had taught me was you live and you do your best. And when your number's up, your number's up. But to be, but to, but for me, for you to say to me, well, you shouldn't go to the mountains when your kids are young because you might die. It's like saying, well, you shouldn't really go to work because, you know, there might be a lightning strike and you could get hit by lightning because it happens. People die at work. People die making coffee, you know, and, and, and I don't just dwell on this whole thing like it'll never happen to me. I do think sometimes, yeah, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm in danger. I'm not frightened of stuff. But I do get frightened and I have been struck by lightning and had, you know, real third degree burns and horrible, you know, uh, things. But it doesn't stop me because it's who I am. And my kids have known that. And yes, if I died when they were four or five, yeah, it would have been sad. But, you know, we're so strong. And I get back to this story about this girl who was six years old in the Congo when there was this massive um, uh, just slaughter, you know, the Hootsies against the Tootsies. And uh, this kid was in a schoolroom and the bodies were piled and slashed and killed on top of her, she spent three days under a pile of dead corpses with blood dripping on them, and she got out of that and survived and then got out of the country and told her story. If she can do that, my kids can 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 deal with their dad dying and my mother finding another partner. You know, I, I just believe that. And 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 uh, and and I and I, I and I think we, what we've done is we've gone way beyond that. So it's like you can't even be rude to someone. You can't even say, no, what you've just done is wrong. Stop it. You know, people go, oh, no, you, you have to understand and empathize. We've gone too much the other way. And that's not good either. You know, this objective balance is really important. And maybe I'm too skewed one way, but a lot of society is skewed too much the other way. And we overprotect our children. What I, yeah, I, dis, I, I completely agree. And I think what separates someone with your opinion, which I respect, even if I don't completely agree with it, or even if it's not true for me, from somebody who I, whose opinion I don't respect on the matter, who does what we, you do, is you've thought about it. And I think that's really critical. You've actually spent time thinking, can I justify this to myself? And your answer is yes. And my answer is yes. And lots of people close to me and otherwise, luckily my wife gets it, but they just don't. And they do think I'm kind of a selfish loon who cares more about my own ego and the mountains and these adventures than I do about my kids. That is not true at all. Leo Holding said to me in, in base camp at the base of Mount Rorima, I asked him in an interview, how do you justify coming here doing what we're about to go and do when you've got young kids at home. And he said, I've, I've said this before on the podcast, and I, I, I'm paraphrasing, but it really stuck with me. Um, he said, I want my kids to see me living as the wholly authentic version of myself. I love the thing I love, and that's who I am. And he didn't say this, but that's kind of the curse of the mountaineer or the adventure is that is who we are. And whether my kids want to be ballet dancers, rally drivers, working Tesco's, whatever they want to do, 
I want them to live their lives with the same passion I live my life. Mm. And I thought that that's it's perfect for me. Mm. Uh, I get it. Mm. It, it. You know, my wife's a musical theatre kind of a lister, and she is as passionate about that as I am about what I do. Mm. She might be casting off to Paris for two and a half months at the end of the year. And off we go with the babies. You know, I support that because she supports my adventures. Hers are less risky than mine. But, <laughs> you know, we're, 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 we're in tangent mode here, but it's a lot of fun. Um, I just, I love your point around the judgment and how everybody else looks at who we are and what we do. And that's why I referenced it when I said, you have decided that you can justify it for you. And really for me at the core of it, that's all that matters. Yeah. yeah. I think it's, it's slightly different with your kids than it is with mine because you might've talked to them about it or they would understand it. That's the difference. And I think, you know, I'm rambling. So I'll ask you the question I've been dying to ask you for 15 minutes, which is, do you want to die in the mountains? No, I don't want to die. Well, you're going to. <laughs> no, but you see, again, it gets back to the wrapping yourself up in cotton wool. Why dwell on the inevitable? Focus on reality today. So I don't think about dying. I think about doing stuff and having fun and inspiring and raising money and supporting the thousand children. We're up to thousand children now across Southeast Asia, which I'm really proud about, seven different countries. You know, that's what I dwell because that's focused. What is focus? It's getting rid of the of the things that that take your attention away from what you should be thinking about. That's what focus is. If you can eliminate all the peripherals, you you're, you're a more efficient person. And my mate Charles Toomey, who is unbelievable, who's the co-founder of Action for Diabetes, he's the master of focus, and and he um, he just you know I mean he's he's ex special forces blah blah blah. And one of the first things they teach you is get rid of the emotion. Emotion takes your energy, takes your time, it takes you away from what you should be focused on. Get rid of the emotion. Now clearly, not many people can do that. But if you want to live an efficient, focused life, you want to stop thinking about where do I want to die. It's bollocks. You're going to die when you die. Focus on looking after your kids. Make sure, you know, I've got to do lots of paperwork so they inherit and we don't pay tons of money to the tax. Make sure my wife's all right. Make sure my family all right. Focus on real stuff. But I, I don't think about, am I going to die in the mountains or am I going to die going downhill at 90 miles an hour on my road bike or whatever? I just focus on doing stuff and having fun and looking out, looking after the people around me. Yeah, I get it. I mean, the only bit, I think you and I are very different people in lots of ways and that, you know, it takes all sorts to make a world, but I think the emotions are important. It's just, I've learned that there's a time and a place for them. And actually taking, I take a box with me on expedition, metaphorical, and I put my emotions in that because I've got to make difficult decisions quickly on impulse and gut and emotions are very dangerous things in those environments. But I, you know, if I ever wrote a book, it would be about coming home and the decompression chamber. And I think some people struggle with that more than others. I really struggle with it. And I do see it as a decompression chamber because mm. I have to get all my emotions out and look at them, all the things I've been feeling and thinking that I haven't allowed myself to view. Mm. 
but then that's a whole different story. It's great, though. It's great uh, talking to you because I always thought I overanalyze and think deeply. You're another level. Uh, so, <laughs> so well done. But, um, no, I mean, compartmentalization, for sure you're going to do it. Um, I mean, you know, Doug Scott always said you have to, if you go uh, on expeditions, new routing in the Himalaya, wherever, you have to go with total commitment knowing that you might not come back. Um, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with the definition of real adventure for me is when you don't know the end, how it will end. You don't know. That's real adventure and it's rare. People go, I'm adventurous. I do this and this. Bollocks. What you're doing is you're going out and doing a pretty much set piece exercise, which could be still running around Scotland, but pretty much you know you're going to get back alive. Um, when I used to climb, you know, new routes or trad routes or on site trad at Gogarth, I would say to myself, Yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to come back alive. You climb an E5, E6 at Gogarth and you're doing it on site, um, you might die. Very, very few climbers do, but you might. And I was happy with that, and I've always been happy with that, and that's commitment, but that's what you need for new route uh, expeditions because you could die, and you have to face that, and I just face it and go, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a fair point around the mortality, but I think adventure and mortality are not intrinsically linked, and I like what you say about, you know, adventure requires that uncertain endpoint. We don't know what's going to happen, and I think... You can, I could find adventure. I have a map at home. They're amazing. You can print them out on Ordnance Survey with my house in the middle. And it's inspired by Alistair Humphreys. And there are so many parts of the place that I live that I've never been to, don't know what they are. And I have very adventurous days, hours exploring, in inverted commas, these places. It's adventurous. I don't know what's there. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to die. I'm pretty sure I'm not even going to get cold or hungry. But it's adventurous. Um, and I think, you know, that again, avoiding the self-help podcast stuff, like I find deep, deep, deep adventure in kind of the far reaches of the planet doing things that do scare me and intimidate me, but I live a very adventurous life as a young dad, you know, where my trips away are limited now within 15 miles of my house. And that's brilliant. And there's nothing wrong with that. And don't think I'm elitist about adventure. I only do adventure because I might die. No, not at all. But I just think we have to be clear about what real adventure is. Because let's be honest, everything's got merged in this in this digital world. And people go, right, I'm gonna do a real, real adventure today. You know, I'm going to I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hike round my village. I'm gonna do that. And I'm gonna do it without any support. And you go that's great. But that's just hiking around your village. <laughs> yeah, that's great and do it. Yeah. You know, that's good. Go and, go and hike around your village. I think what frustrates me most is, frankly, and I'm going to get my, I very rarely get all my opinions out on these podcasts, <laughs> but, is when people call something a challenge that isn't really a challenge and they say it's, you know, they're going to do the three peaks in boxing gloves and it's a real tough adventure, and they, they want to be lauded and celebrated for it. And frankly, you know, the 8,000ers and all that, you know, people being guided up these routes and calling themselves adventurers, I think that's less adventurous. I think being guided up Manaslu is less adventurous than a couple of university students going to Scotland with 50 quid in a tent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Having just been on a, um, we, we went to K2, Rick and I went to K2 uh, paying for um, the expedition services so we could use the base camp, we could uh, use the tents that they put up, but we actually, no, we, we actually carried our own tents, but we everything else, uh, and we could use their fixed ropes, but everything else, we carried all our own food, we did actually carry our tents and our cooking and all the rest of it. So it's kind of part commercial, but looking at commercial expeditions, and I guided, you know, I've guided commercial expeditions in, in, in the Himalaya before. I'm, I think I'm the only type one diabetic guide in the Himalaya, but um, you know, they're so difficult to say this, but they are in so many ways set piece exercises. Those clients, if they did die, oh my goodness, they have the money and the legal ability to just shut that company down. So they don't want to die, they don't have any risk, but they do want to summit Manaslu, Everest, K2, whatever. And that's where my experience of commercial expeditions, I just realized they're just not for me. You know, when I'm in base camp, with a Saudi prince who is going to climb K2 and he's never led anything, rock, ice, or anything, and he's never had two ice axes in his hands. He's only had one because why would you need two? Because you need a Jumar, right? And you might have an ice axe just for a little bit of stability, but basically you're Jumaring. You go, that's not right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why people die. And people did die on that trip, and it wasn't just Rick. Um, you know, we had one, one guy, he was a, a Qatari banker. He did summit uh, Broad Peak, and he got really bad frostbite coming down. Why did he get really bad frostbite? I'll tell you why. Because he was texting to social media as he came down, and he and he ran out of oxygen, and he didn't realize what was happening to him, and he got his name out on social media, and he got frostbite, and we had to look after him for three or four days at base camp before he got flown out. You go, that's not right. <laughs> In my yeah. as a mountaineer, <laughs> texting to bloody Facebook, and you get frost, um, uh, you get frostbite. Come on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I. I... I have to say, you know, as part of my job, obviously we we send stuff out from the field. That's what we have to yeah. do, but not at cost to my fingertips. Yeah. You know, and I suppose that's the difference. Uh, this isn't interesting for anybody else, but that's the difference between commercial brand funded expedition and and not. You know, I my my ticket to these big trips is that I'm being paid to shoot photos, film, make films, deliver dispatches live from the field. Like that's my ticket, so I do it. But I've had lots of moments on those trips where I could shoot something and I choose not to because I want to just sit there instead. Yeah. Um, that's how I get my fix. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, that's a whole different thing. We've been talking for ages. It's brilliant, but I'm going to start wrapping it up. I um, I would like to ask you how you now live an adventurous life with your fused knees and screwed ankles and <laughs> et cetera. Um, I've, I suppose I've swapped my climbing for my bike riding. Uh, I'm driving from Southwest Wales back to where I live in Salkham, Southern Devon. On the way, I'm going to stop at Exeter. I'm going to park my car, get my gravel bike out and cycle 185 kilometers unsupported around the East Devon Way. Um, uh, you should take two to five days. I'm going to try and do it in 24 hours and I'll get back in my car and come home. And, that's one of the ways I live my adventure. It's not super hard. It's nothing huge, but it's a lot of fun. And I'm also cycling. I'm doing more and more bikepacking trips. Um, 
And one of the things I like to do is always combine my uh, adventures with raising money to help impoverished children with type 1 diabetes. Um, as I said, I've overcome many challenges in my life, but diabetes uh, and controlling my, my blood sugars is probably the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. And so I want to help people, um, not in the UK where they have a lot of support, but in places like Cambodia and Myanmar and Laos um, where they have zero help. And that's what we do. And that's what Action for Diabetes does. That's the charity I started with my co-founder, uh, Charles Toomey, in 2015. Um, and so I like to raise money to help those children. And I do adventure and I'm combining both. So um, uh, I do backpacking challenges. I do climbing challenges. But this August, I'm doing something slightly different. I'm raising money for children with type 1 diabetes in Ukraine. And what we're doing is we're cycling from London to Kiev. It's 2,400 kilometers. Um, and we're going to do it over between 20 and 25 days. We cross eight different countries. And I'm trying to raise £100,000 to restore, rebuild um, a hospital um, that used to house or support uh, diabetics, but especially children with diabetes, um, in Ukraine. Um, and what I'd really like is other cyclists to join me on that journey for an hour, for a day, for a week, for whatever, and to help me raise money. And you can raise money by joining my Just Giving page, and I'll give all, all the details out. But um, that's going to be, to get back to your question, how I... Um, how I do my adventures these days. Um, it's it's bikepacking mostly, although there is climbing as well. And um, and it's as much as I can do, uh, Ukraine isn't a great example, but as much as I can do is unsupported. So it's, it's me and my bike with my team carrying all our equipment, doing our thing, whether it's in around Devon, whether it's across uh, Kyrgyzstan, wherever it is. Um, it's a little bit like a climbing expedition, but it's on two wheels rather than two legs. Amazing. It's all set. I mean, there's so much more I could talk to you about, but I'm very conscious of time. But how much do you think you know, you've started a charity, it clearly brings you immense purpose and probably joy as well as occasionally sorrow, I'm not sure. But without your diagnosis, you might not have ever done anything like that. Is there a sense that, this is a tricky question, I guess, that you're glad you were diagnosed or not at all? You know, honestly, I do think about that. And I think, sometimes I think, Diabetes was the best thing that ever happened to me. But as soon as those words are out of my mouth, I go, oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> because there are people who are destroyed by this condition. And they're not just destroyed, but their loved ones, their partners, their family are destroyed as well. And I've seen that. I've seen it in Southeast Asia. I've seen it in South America. I've seen it in Britain. I've seen it in Europe they're destroyed. So I have to be really careful when I say that. And now I've just said it on a big adventure podcast, so that's not great. But uh, honestly, I, I, I never look back. I just go, diet one diabetes, mm, 
bit of a bugger, really hard, living with it every day. There's no weekends. There's no time off. I've got it for the rest of my life. Um, but it's another chapter, and life's are all about a rich pageantry. I really believe in that. that. And this, you know, Taiwan Diabetes has introduced me to so many new things, people, places, cultures, I can't tell you. Uh, I've traveled around the world with it. I'm an ambassador for the International Diabetes Federation. Uh, I've got my charity. Um, I'm a member of various associations and organizations. I do a lot of support. And I would never have done any of that. I wouldn't even, you know... Healthcare professionals, HCPs, I say that word, write that word 20 times, 30 times a day. I didn't even know what those initials stood for before. So, yeah, it's another chapter, and it hasn't stopped me climbing, it hasn't stopped me adventuring, but it's made my life richer. Also incredibly hard, I'm going to give you a quick story, very quick, I know it's the end, but, you know, you imagine, uh, this is my wife now, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, she's woken up because the bed is covered in sweat, and her partner next to her is literally a screaming monster. I'm going like this. As my blood sugars has dropped, I'm now having a hyperglycemic attack, and I'm out of it. She then has to go downstairs, get some honey, rub them into my gums. The quickest way you get sugar into your body is through your, your mouth, through your gums. Rub the honey, even though I'm going gnashing and all the rest of it, she has to quietly and delicately get it in there. Then she gets a little square of a honey sandwich, bringing my sugars up. Then after about three o'clock now, an hour into it, I'm just compensamentous enough. She gets me out of the bed. She gets me to eat half a banana. Then I go into the shower. I shower, she has a shower because we're both covered in sweat. We then change the bed linen, everything, and I go straight back to, to bed. I've been like, you know, uh, like doing a, a marathon. She's up and she won't go back to sleep and her day's already started and it started at two in the morning. And at one stage in my diabetic life, I was having one or two of those a week. So that's traumatic and that's difficult for her and she dealt with it and she deals with it and my children have dealt with it. My youngest daughter saved my life at least twice when I've been in a hyperglycemic attack. And um and it's 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 difficult, it's tough. Um but you know it's it's part of my life and those are the bad bits, but there's lots of good bits. And you can't choose. You Your life is your life, and you have to try and make it as good as you can, and that's all you can do. And so are you happy? Jubilant. Come on, Matt. You've been talking to me for two bloody hours. I, I love my life. I can't say my family do, but I love it. <laughs> I'm glad. You know, I don't ask that that question very often, but I'm glad. You know, I think sometimes people give off this surface happiness, but really what's going on? But I do get that sense. I mean, you know, there's I've got a lot of problems in my life. Like anybody, there's a lot of issues, there's a lot of stuff going on, um, relationships and people and all sorts of stuff. Um, but I've had a rich life. I mean, you know, I'm not going to show off because I don't show off, but you've already said it. Look at my CV. That's a lot of joy. I feel, you know, privileged, selfish, blah, blah, blah. But I still have a wife. We're still together. My kids talk to me every day. 
I'm going to go and see my mother over coronation. And I say that again, I can't believe it. And um, and it's like, you know, what is a good life? What is happiness? You know, um, I don't do normal stuff. I don't go to the pub and say, come on, everybody, let's get drunk and we'll be happy. I don't do that. I mean, I don't go, go to the pub now and again, but I take my happiness from different stuff. I, I, I People would say I take my happiness from uh, from suffering, but I don't think that's true either. And I do suffer, but I I love doing stuff and some of it's painful. But yeah, God, I'm so lucky. I mean, what a rich life. You know, I I spent 10 years working. I was a marketing director, ex-marketing director of Cotswold Outdoor. Business is bloody boring, right? As Pete Boardman and Joe Tasker said, the real heroes in the world are not the climbers and the adventurers. They're the people who sit at home and do the hardcore day-to-day work. They're the heroes. Adventurers, basically, we're living our best life. (laughs) Ace. So I end these podcasts with the same two questions every time. The first is, what scares you? Not living my life. I'm going to push you to expand. Um, I do have a drive to get up every day and do something, and I want to do something. I want to make a difference. I want to help children with with, uh, with type 1 diabetes in, in, in emerging countries. Uh, I want to inspire people, um, and I get frustrated when... I sat, sit at home. I, I had really bad sciatica once. I was on my back for about four to five months, and that wasn't a great time. I was literally thinking, I'm going to get in my car, I'm going to drive off the cliff, and, you know, I, you know, it was pain, and it was just inactivity. I like to be active. I like to do stuff. Um, I like to be busy, and I'm pretty bloody busy, you know, um, and I suppose it would scare me to sit at home uh, doing nothing, just nothing you know and yeah that's kind of scary but then I think oh, I'd, I'd probably get into reading because I don't read enough so I, I get into reading and so you know I you know I'm not defined by scariness I'm defined by optimism and and that's that's what I live for and so you know I don't dwell on what's scary I dwell on yeah what can I do and let's go and do it and what brings you hope uh women you weren't expecting that. Um, so um, one of my reasons for optimism in the world is that women are um, are being empowered and are being um, respected and are being and, and people are realizing that they're amazing and we need more of them in our life and we need them at the top of society, not just in the middle or at the bottom. You look at what's happened in Ukraine. The men are, I'm going to exaggerate, but they're either fighting or they're dead. What are the women doing? They're holding that country together. They are brilliant. And suddenly people are going, oh yeah, rather than kind of like middle management, she's actually running the company and uh, she's doing a bit better than I did it. Oh my good goodness. Um, women are amazing and we need them and we need more right at the very top of the world to bring balance and objectivity and empathy and love. And I get emotional even talking about it and just things that men can't do. Um, so women give me optimism because I look at my daughters and, you know, they're ed- educated and they're making a difference already. And they're doing that a lot because they're women. And I love that. That gives me optimism. Hear, hear. 
It's one of the best answers anyone's ever given to that question. Mm. And we're 150 deep. Um, yeah, well done you. <laughs> um, amazing. Well, on that incredibly positive note, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. That was fun and brilliant and um, inspiring. <laughs> Good. Well, I enjoyed it too. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information, head to the Adventure Podcast at co.uk. If you want to get in touch, then you can email me at matt at terraincognita.studio. And finally, as always, please do leave us an honest review on iTunes. <laughs>